Well, we're, we're back in the book of Romans. It's exciting to study this book. It truly is the book, the place to go to if you want to understand the greatest problems facing the human race. It also gives us the solution and it gives us the deepest, most penetrating analysis of what's going on in the human experience. And so now we're in chapter 7, we're pushing through, and there's a question that I'd like to ask, and it's a question that reverberates through all of us, and it's captured a little bit in this picture. It's, it's a picture of this woman in anguish. Why do I do the very things I do not want to do? Now, I want to give a little bit of a, a shout-out to the artist. Uh, Safdek Zek was a Bosnian artist who tried to capture the anguish, the struggle, the conflict of Bosnia and all that was happening in the Civil War and the genocide. And I think that this is one of the panels of pictures that he came to as we look at what's, what's going on. Why do I do this conflict, this inner struggle that all of us find? Why do I do the very things I don't want to do? You don't have to cast very far, do you, to catch what I'm talking about? Just the other day, Kathy and I were in a conflict. Sometimes some people in the church call it loud fellowship. <laughs> now, can I tell you how many times I vowed I never want to do that again? But what happened? I found myself in that very cycle of doing the very thing I don't want to do. We find it in relationships all the time. People, friendships, family, and all of a sudden we're in this conflict, this struggle, and we're saying things we, we really don't want to say, but they come out. Or we have attitudes, we're like, why does that attitude keep coming? Why does that thought keep coming back to my mind? Why am I doing the very things I don't want to do? How many parents here, don't raise your hand please, but how many parents, right? You're like, you're, you're trying to raise your children. You're, you're trying to do everything you can and you mess up and you say, I'll never do that again. But what happens? You find yourself right back into that parental cycle saying, I don't want to do that again. How many of us, don't raise your hands again, you say, I'm never going to eat like that again. <laughs> I'm never going to drink like that again. I'm never going to write these bondages that we struggle with. And Paul, in the book of Romans, wants to go after that very question so that you and I can understand what's going on in the inner struggle of the human soul. So I'm so glad you're here this morning. So glad you're online. So important that we look at what God has to say about the human struggle. If you have your Bible, if you have a device, please open with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We've already looked at verses 1 to 13, so we're going to dive in at verse 14. Please follow along as I read. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We're going to do some texting today, so you'll see numbers on the screen. I really need you to participate. If you're online, I really want to encourage you to participate. This is a difficult chapter, and sometimes you have questions. You're like, now what does he mean when he says, or maybe I didn't cover something, or there's confusion. Text in your question. Before I pray, I want to take just a moment to and uh, ask you to pray with me for the situation in the Ukraine. There is so much happening in our world, and uh, we need to keep bathing these things in prayer, because prayer truly does change things. It's a mystery. But God says this, remember in James chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you have not asked. Well, I don't want to be found guilty of not asking. I don't know what God's going to do, but I know God's all-powerful. He's all good. And so let's ask. Father, our hearts grieve. Our hearts are just broken over the brokenness in this world and the sin that gets revealed through war and conflicts. Nation rising up against nation. And God, a lot of people, children, babies, women, boys are being killed recklessly. Many are fleeing the country. And God, we, we can hardly understand geopolitical issues and all that goes behind them, but you do. So we're asking in Jesus' name that you would protect these lives in Ukraine, that, God, you would put an end to this conflict, that you would give better minds through women, through men, to come to a resolution over this conflict. But, God, we're asking that you would save lives, that you would deliver the Ukrainians from this force through Russia. God, we ask for your blessing on this country. And God, don't let us shrink back from doing what you're asking us to do as your people, to pray, to give, and to help wherever we can. And Father, thank you that your word in Romans is so powerfully clear about what's happening in this world because it's happening in our own souls. So let us not point fingers, but let us cry out to you for mercy as we try to deal with our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Well, I do want to preface a little bit again in Romans 7. Remember I said this, that it's a difficult chapter. And I want you to be careful of any book you read or anybody that comes up with some great idea just based on Romans 7. Usually you find cults and you find crazy teaching about the human condition if they base it only on one chapter. What you want to do is read Romans 7 in the context of Romans 6 and Romans 8, Let's bring in chapter 5, and all of a sudden you get a clearer picture. But God even gives us more. He gives us the whole New Testament, and when we bring that in, we get even more clarity about what's going on in the human soul. And then if you take 
the whole Bible, you get even more clarity. So what I'm arguing for is read Romans 7, not merely isolated, because you will find yourself in rough waters, but read it in the context of the chapters around it, the book of Romans, the New Testament, and the Old Testament. So just want to give a little bit of a warning for that. And I want to just bring us back into the beginning of Romans 7 just for a moment. Remember it starts out in verse 1. Paul writes, uh, dear brothers and sisters, right? Now, do you remember in Romans, it's a congregation. It's a group of people that has some ethnic diversity, the way the church ought to be, right? But in this case, the ethnic diversity was pretty broad, but it's pretty much divided by Paul's writing in the New Testament into two camps. You had the Jews on one hand and the Gentiles. And as these two groups of people met, they of course read the law differently. They understood the Mosaic law differently. Certainly the Jews were brought up, most of them, brought up in it, understanding it, reading it, perhaps memorizing it, quoting it, and whatnot. So there started to be a conflict in this church. So as we read this, we need to understand a little bit of the historical context. Now, what also happens is Paul makes a number of statements about the law, and that starts getting a little confusing. But you've got to remember, there's a diverse congregation, and he's trying to address these issues. So I want to put together just some summary statements of what is happening that we've already seen. Paul said that the law is holy, but it can't make you holy. That's an important statement because there were some Jews that thought if you could only keep the law, you would become holy. And remember we talked about this last week, is there's a way to talk about the law that is really, really significant. And that is this, is that the law, as Paul says, it's good, it's holy, it's perfect, and there's the challenge of it can't make you holy. It can't do what we often wanted it to do. So... What happens is there's some people then that are totally against the law, right? They're saying, throw it out. In fact, there's swaths of Christians that say that the law, the Old Testament, I'm speaking mostly of the entire Old Testament, but we could even narrow it down to just the Pentateuch, the first five books, throw it out. That was for a different time. Or there's some people that want to say, here, you got to keep the law. And they put this yoke upon you, this burden. And what Paul does is he pulls us out of either one of those extremes and says, wait a minute, the law is good, it's holy, it's perfect. And if we live by grace, if we live by grace, we can allow the law to stand as God meant for it to stand. So in Romans 7, he says we died to the law. Remember we said we died to the power of the law. The law no longer controls us. That's what it says in verse 4. In verse 6 of Romans 7, it says we are released from the law. So that there's no longer this control because some people thought you could get right with God if you kept the law. And many of you know my story. I grew up thinking if I was just good enough, I could please God. I constantly thought I just got to do good and God will smile upon me. I lived my first 17 years that way, just thinking I got to please God. I got to do good. I can't trip up. And it creates in you this anxiety, this fear. And eventually, if you're really honest with yourself, you're like, well, I'll never please God because I can never be that good. I can never be that perfect. Now, certainly I might be better than you. Just saying. <laughs> but who cares? Who cares if we're better than Hitler? Or who cares if we're better than Stalin? Who cares if we're better than Putin? Who cares if we're not as good as God himself? 
right? We just fall short is what Paul writes about in Romans 3 is that we all fall short of the glory of God. So we're released from that burden. So then the question for the Jews in the congregation when Paul was writing was, well, Paul, we're confused. If you're saying the law is good, but we're not under the law, if you're saying the law is holy, but we, we uh, can't keep it or we're released from it, what place does it have? And so what Paul then does is he brings us into the issue of sin. Verse 7, he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Absolutely not. He's saying that the law is good, but that it's the sin that works within us. Now that's really, really important. Let me just make another statement here is as we think about the law, remember I've tried to paint a picture. We did it through texting uh, the last time was that the law serves a little bit as a curb. Now these aren't original with me, but the law serves as a, a, a curb. Just think of it like a curb on a road. It, it kind of keeps you on the road. And the law says, you know, here's the road, here's the path. Now, it's not going to make you holy, but it at least tells you where the path is. Now, Paul laid this out using the idea of coveting, the, 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 one of the Ten Commandments, but you could see this. We could see in, in the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, right? Thou shall not murder. Well, that's a curb. God is saying, don't murder. Or the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Because it's a curb. Marriage is to be protected. Or the eighth commandment, do not steal. Right? These are curbs that help guide the Christian. These are really, really good. Well, the Bible also says that the scripture is, uh, or the law is like a mirror. Right? Paul says, I came to understand coveting because of the law. I looked in the mirror and I saw what I really was. So the law helps us to see that we've got some issues in our soul. Here's the last thing the law does. It acts as a guide. So when again, going back to the Ten Commandments, first commandment, there shall be no other God before me. See, that's a guide. Don't let any other God get in your life. The second commandment, right? You shall not make for yourself an idol. It's a guide to help us. Or you think of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. It's a guide so that we can live, but it will never make us right with God. The only way to be right with God is to fall on your face and cry out for mercy. Receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why we say, so often, along with so many believers through the centuries, we are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. And that is the hope of the gospel. We could never earn it. So that sets us up now for Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and following. So when we get into verse 14, I want to make this first point, and it's this. The law incites the flesh against God. It's the law that, that fuels and, and, and we come against it. Remember the law doesn't have power but the law incites us. So when we try to be good and we're not we get upset, don't we? When we try to do what we really want to do but we can't, it's the law coming in. And that's what Paul says. Right in verse one or fourteen, he says, "We know that the law is spiritual." Now, I don't want to put a slide up on this. I want you to see it in your own device or in your own Bible. Is I want you to see in verse fourteen, he says, "We know that the law is spiritual." Now, when he uses that, he starts raising some questions. So let's get all the questions on the table. He says, "For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh." sold under sin. That one verse creates three questions. What does Paul mean by spiritual? What does he mean by flesh? And what does he mean sold under sin? I thought we died to the law. I thought that sin no longer had some of the power over us as we saw before. Well, let me answer just the first one. The law is spiritual. What Paul's talking about is the law 
originated from God. Human beings, Moses, did not come up with the Mosaic Law. He simply, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote down what God wanted him to write down. The origin, the the source, where it all comes from, is it comes from God. And as you know, and I like to say often, we live in a world of 7.5 billion people. You know what that means? There's 7.5 billion opinions. But there's only one opinion that matters, and that's God. And he gave us his word. That's the law, and it's spiritual because it comes from God. But now let's take the more complicated one, and it's the word flesh. Now the word flesh by Paul, as we look at all of his writings, it does become a little complicated because sometimes he uses flesh just talking about the human body. And sometimes if you move down a spectrum, he's talking about what you see in front of you on the screen. A description of humanity that is weak, transitory, sinful, and rebellious against God. And I think that's what he's doing here is he's using this word flesh that stands in contrast to God. That there is this, as we'll see in a little bit, a law that is operating within our human uh, condition that we deal with, our human being, our, our self. And so when Paul's using the word flesh here, it's that sin, that darkness that we've talked about. And I'm going to use a picture in a little bit that'll help us uh, uh, a little bit more. So that becomes a question. And then this idea of being sold under sin. Now that becomes complicated because some of you may have a translation that reads something like this, sold as a slave under sin. Some of you might have a translation that uses the word bondage. I want to tell you why it gets translated that way. It's because the word sold is the main word for slavery. It's the main word that was used for selling slaves. So people think that because the word was often used that way, that we should just imply that the word slavery should be included. But it's not in the original. In the original Greek, it just simply reads, sold under sin. That's how it reads in Greek. That becomes really important because words have meaning in context. And that's where this gets to be a difficult chapter. Is Paul is using phrases and language that makes it difficult. And so here he's talking about being sold under sin. And you say, wait a minute, because I know what you're thinking right now. You said that we died to some of this, right? Well, what Paul is doing now is using this word sold is that sin is still a power that operates in Christians. Until we get home to heaven or Jesus returns, we're going to be dealing with sin in our souls, in our hearts. Paul looks at life, the human being, holistically. We sometimes like to break it out, body, soul, spirit. But that's really not Paul's main view here. He's talking about holistically of how we deal in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts, and the spiritual world, all that wrapped up in our physical body. So he's saying that there's still this sin that is operating in our lives. So when he said that it's sin that brings death, that sin is his power, is that all of us, no one escapes this, has sin. And it's operative. And it will be operative, again, until Jesus returns or you go home to be with him. So that's where where Paul is bringing this. Now, there's another question I have to put on the table because it's a common question when we read Romans 7. And it's this. Who is the I? Now, that question becomes significant because what we often do is we say, this isn't supposed to be the Christian life. I thought the Christian life was, I'm going to trust Christ and everything is going to go great. There's not going to be any more problems. Well, let me tell you, folks, 
I have a lot more problems after becoming a Christian than I did before I was a Christian. Before I was a Christian, I just lived however I wanted. Who cared? But when I became a Christian, all of a sudden, there were new things happening. There were new affections in my heart. There were new changes. And I started to read God's Word and started to see how God wanted me to live. Now I've got issues. And so who is this I? I think, and I'll just lay it out, I put it here, is either a reference to Paul before he became a Christian, that's why there's a struggle, or it's a reference to Paul after he became a Christian. That's the struggle. I think, I haven't counted exactly because there's so many, but if you counted the number of times Paul says, I, my, or me, it's something like 40 times. And it's in the present tense. So, my opinion, my view, is that Paul is talking about the Christian life. He's talking about his own life right now. So what Paul is doing is as he looks at this I, he's, he's talking about what it's like to be a Christian. Now why do I take this position? Remember, I want to broaden out my understanding of what Paul is doing and not base it just on Romans 7. So when I look at Paul's clear statements about being uh, a Pharisee, so I could read Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, or I could read Philippians chapter 3. All of a sudden, Paul is boasting about the law. He's boasting about being a Pharisee. He's boasting about keeping the law. It's all about him, and ego rises to the top. What happens after he encounters Jesus Christ? All of a sudden, he's boasting in only Jesus Christ. He's boasting in the cross. So I think what Paul is doing here is talking about his own inner struggle. But I want to add one more caveat. Remember, we're in the middle of a conversation. So if you start in chapter 5 like we did, and you just listen in chapter 7 without considering chapter 8, you're only getting part of the conversation. So what Paul is doing is saying, who's going to set me free, as we read? Well, Jesus Christ. But what he doesn't quite answer, but he tipped his hand, what he doesn't quite answer is how does Jesus Christ do that? So there's this inner struggle that he doesn't want to deny, but how is it that the Christian, how is it that you and I can get out of that cycle of why do I do what I don't want to do? How do we break that, that crazy cycle of doing the very things you hate? Well, Paul really answers that in chapter 8. But he's starting to lay the frame, the guard, the direction, the foundation in Jesus Christ as we read here. So I think those are two main reasons I look at as why Paul is saying that that uh, why I think Paul, the I here, is, is the Christian. Let me uh, just say a little bit more, is that as we look at this, this conflict, that the sin that dwells in me, uh, we're free from the power of it, but it's there. And you say, wait a minute, it's there, but it doesn't have power. I think it's something like this, and I think some of you will be able to identify with it, but you need to think of a person. Find a person that somehow controlled you, manipulated you, maybe bullied you, had power over you. Sometimes it's a dad, right? A, a dad could be an ogre. He could be mean. He could be whatever, right? And, and when you're a child, you're under his power. And you know what that was like. Whoever this person is in your life, right? They walk into the room, and what do you feel? You tense up. Because it brings back thoughts and feelings and emotions of what it was like. 
when you were a child and you were under their control. But as an adult, you say, wait a minute, I'm not under the control of my dad anymore. But if my dad was that ogre I'm talking about and he walks into the room, what happens? It brings back all of this stuff. I think it gives a little bit of a glimpse of what happens with sin. Even though sin should not have power over us, it still has a way of shaping the way we live in influence. And I think that that's where Paul is going with all of this, this, this conflict that's being described. But that's the first. Let's hit the second point real quickly here. And that is this. Remember, if I've said something and you need a text, uh, send a text question. Uh, that would be good as well. Uh, second point is not only that the law incites the flesh, but there's this raging war. And that's what we've been trying to talk about. And that's where Paul comes a little tighter in verses 21 following. He says, For I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So he's talking about wanting the law to have a place. It's a guardrail, a curb as I said. It's a teacher or a, a guide or it's a mirror. He's saying, but when I do that, there's this evil presence that lies right behind. So let's just dig a little deeper into this because I want us to see is that what Paul sets up is he delights in the law of God, right? That's where he says he finds delight. Verse 22, in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law. Well, what's that other law? It's the law of sin that is operating. That's what Paul's saying. There's this two-law situation that's crying out. Now, he's just using the word law for sin in contrast to the law of God. Is it a law as a principle? It's a way to operate, and that sin operates in a certain way. So he's calling it a law, and it dwells, he says, in my members. All he's trying to say is that it dwells in part of us. We can't wrench it out. It's there. Even after you become a Christian, there's this indwelling sin that he's talked about earlier in the chapter. Well, not only does he do that, talk about these two laws, look what else he talks about. He talks about what I want to call are just two cries of the heart. First of all, he cries out, wretched man that I am. I do the very things I don't want to do. I know what the good things are, but I can't do them. He cries out, wretched man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He then cries out, thanks be to God. Only God can deliver us. So you want to know the most penetrating analysis of the human condition is you and I cannot stop wars, whether they're national, international, or in our families. Only Jesus Christ can set us free. Only his power. Now, as we look at this, I want to bring us to another place. They say that words, one picture will cover for a thousand words. I want to give you a picture of what I think is happening as Paul describes this. Let me clear the screen. So as a non-Christian, think of your life as a jungle. Think of a plane flying over a jungle and you look down and you see this huge mess of trees and vines and plants. Think of your life that way. It's disoriented. You're trying to fight your way through this jungle. You're trying to make life work. You're trying to make everything fit. You're trying, 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 and it's all this big tangled mess of roots and trees and vines and plants and they grow through each other and around each other and they cover everything. It's a huge mess. That's what I think a picture is of sin. Now Paul used a lot of different words and remember I said the most devastating thing about sin is the wrath of God is being poured out. But that's the jungle. But as a Christian something powerful happens. Look at this next picture. What God does through the power of Jesus Christ is he clears a hole in the jungle. He 
he whacks out some trees. He doesn't take all of them. So some people are in bondage, maybe to a drug addiction, maybe alcohol, maybe sex, maybe whatever it is. Sometimes God just whacks that sin out and removes it. But sometimes he doesn't. But what is for sure clear, and we're going to see this when we get to Romans 8, is that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and clears out some of the jungle. And that's where God starts to work. So as long as there's more jungle out there, we're going to have more conflict. And the Christian life, what we call sanctification, growing in holiness, is this hole in the jungle begins to get a little bigger. But it's a fight. Because that jungle keeps wanting to grow back. And that's what you and I are fighting with. That's the challenge of the Christian life. And then throw in there the devil and throw in there the world and all that the world pounds us with and all of a sudden this jungle starts encroaching on the hole, the, 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 the groundswell. If you need another picture, let me give you one. Remember war-torn Europe in Second World War. There was this enemy that covered all of Europe. And then all of a sudden, Normandy happened. And they got a toehold on the beach. Just because they got a toehold on the beach didn't mean they were going to make it through all of Europe. But slowly, the enemy was pushed back out of Europe. That's a little picture of what God is doing. Is he slowly, he gets a toehold in our life. He gets a hole in the jungle. And he starts to push back and change us and he starts fixing our affections he starts orienting them in the right way so that we can be the people God calls us to be I know I've said a lot I know that it creates a lot of questions I'm going to invite Pastor Brad to come out we're going to do some texting so Pastor Brad if you'll come out and uh, hope I didn't confuse anybody did I confuse you I look like I, you look like I confused you you just came up as solemn as I've ever oh, seen really? you yeah I'm, are you okay yeah I'm great I'm not confused okay yeah. no well then no and you know but I, what I was I was just thinking like as I try to navigate some questions because different questions come in I'm always like you know a couple come in early a lot come in while I'm up here so what should I ask you you know yeah, right. so I was thinking like you deserve a pass right so if there's a question, you're like, I don't want to touch that. Like, you, you should be able to say pass. Like, you're playing, yeah, like, you know, what's that game? You, 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 you try to, like, describe something, and you, every team gets a pass. So you, you get a pass, Tom, if there's something that comes up. But um, here's, here's, here's a couple. Like, you just got to hope it's not your question that yeah. came in. And, hey, I'm going to pass on that. Okay, the, the, there's a few good ones. So can we at least get, get They're all three? good, Brad. Okay, that's true, yeah. Every question is equal, okay, yeah. Um, can you speak to the way in which Romans 7 is an explanation but not an excuse? Pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, thank you. Whoever asked that question, maybe it was a question from online. Uh, thank you for asking that. Uh, I didn't comment on that verse, but what, what happens is Paul is not trying to make sin as an excuse. We are always morally responsible for our sin. Uh, so when Paul says that, you know, it's this desire to do, but I can't carry it out, he's not saying that, that it's an excuse. We are responsible. We are uh, responsible beings before God, and we, we got to make choices. Yeah. yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Okay, here's another good one. It's kind of on the same vein, but I love that this person took it out of just the individual and made it more corporate. They said, what is the mark of a church stuck in Romans 7 versus a church overcoming Romans 7? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, let me first of all say, Romans 7 does start to give us a key piece of the answer. In verse 6, he introduces he hints at the holy spirit chapter eight he just goes deep on the holy spirit mm -hmm. so there's some answer in chapter seven so it's not just like seven chapter seven's all bleak remember he ends chapter seven who's going to set me free mm -hmm. jesus christ so a church that uplifts jesus christ is going to be a different church than a church that is constantly 
and I know I'm going to offend some people here, that is constantly looking at horizontal things. How to have a good marriage. How to raise kids. How to have good relationships. We all need those kind of topical messages. But if a church imbibes only on those and doesn't get to the meatier, stronger theological pictures of who God is, I think they're going to be lost. So if you don't get to the end of chapter 7, who's going to set me free? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ. Because I can give you lots of good psychological principles, at least I think they were good, about marriage or about family. But ultimately, if we don't understand what's really warring, Hmm. we don't. So that's part of the answer. The second part of the answer, oh, and, and I do want to comment. I love that Pastor Brad constantly in worship stresses, wrestles with how do we worship Jesus Christ? He's constantly raising that question. How do we exalt him, make him more and us less? That's a huge piece of deliverance. The second piece is, we haven't talked about it yet, but the power, the power of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. I want us to be a church that is constantly drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit. I try almost without exception, to bring the Holy Spirit at least as a point somewhere. In the service, in the message, somewhere. Because it's the Holy Spirit. Mm. This is the age of the Spirit. Now I know there's people that abuse the Spirit. People that will refer to the Spirit as an it. The Spirit is not an it. It's part of the Godhead. And we need to see and draw upon the power of the Spirit. And that'll be Romans 8, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, and another thing that came to my mind, Tom, right when I read that question, repentance just, Mm. like, came to my mind. And And why? Bring us into that. Well, like, one thing I do with the band before we start Sunday morning, kind of run through rehearsal, is just oftentimes I'll say, what is something that we need to take off, right? The Bible says we need to put things on this morning. I said, Mm. what do we need to take off? Like, let's get our hearts right with God before we're going to lead any of God's people in worship. And I think there's this idea of not just individually, but corporately. To be honest, I'm even a little like, I don't don't know if it's conviction, but it's this idea of we should do more repentance things in the services. I mean, the service is not the sole time for you to go as a Christian, but it's, it's an important time to grow as a Christian. And so I just think modeling that occasionally, and we do this occasionally, like repent, like let's take some time to confess, whether it's something out loud, whether it's just quiet time. But if a church that's repenting and confessing our sin and giving it to the Lord, verse one that's trying to go about, hey, Jesus is my savior, but he's not my Lord and I'm not gonna continue to submit to him. I don't know, so that's- Yeah, I love that. In fact, just to bring into my own personal life, there's hardly a Sunday I don't say in my heart as we're singing, God, is there anything that's hindering my worship time? Is there anything? Mm-hmm. And, and start dealing with it. That's great, Brad. That's good. Okay, if I keep struggling with my sin, am I still dead to my transgressions and alive in Christ? Ephesians 2. If I keep struggling with my sin, am I still dead to my transgressions? It's like war of the mm. flesh and spirit. Yeah. We have this identity in Christ, but if we're still struggling with the sin, I don't know. Yeah, think? let's me take a pass, but let me hear what you've got to say. <laughs> well, let's go to Ro- Ephesians 2. That sounds like a good idea. Um, let which, me be clear. Theologically, you are alive to God. Mm, that's good. Let's be really clear. You are alive to God. We are dead to the power of sin. So when sin continues, and I don't know who this person is, but let's say it's an addiction and they're struggling to get free. If there's not a struggle there, then you might have a bigger problem. Yes. We don't all have victory. And if I can call on Fox Valley Church to be anything, it's that we would come alongside people because we're all broken. And we all need help. Mm. Every one of us. And if you say today you don't need help, I don't think you're being totally honest. Mm. We all need help. We're broken people. Mm. Our sins may not look the same, but I'll tell you, the stench is the same. Mm. So, 
Okay. Yeah, we're alive to Christ, and, and, and that jungle can start to, to encroach more and more, mm-hmm. but it'll never grow back completely. Hmm. Yeah. How do I know that? That's the promise of Jesus Christ, that we are sealed in his family by the Holy Spirit, mm. Ephesians 4. So we, we need to see that we're sealed. We need to see that we're adopted. He doesn't unadopt us. When he says that we're born again, I think God uses that particular picture. Is it, how can you be unborn? You can't. Just like physically, you can't be unborn once you're born. Once you're born of God, John 1, verse 12 and 13, or John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, once you've been born again, you can't be unborn. Hmm. So. What do you think of this, Tom? I've heard it said before, repentance is not merely a change of behavior, but it's a matter of the heart's attitude toward sin. And I mm-hmm. think it's a little bit what you referenced, this idea of are you at peace with it or are you waging war against mm-hmm. it? And in a similar context, I've heard that there should be some encouragement found in the mere fact that you're struggling with your sin because that's mm-hmm. evidence of God's spirit, right? Working in you and operating in you. Because mm-hmm. like you said, your life before you were a Christian, eh, right. I got a moral code a little bit, but I'll do whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Brad, actually, I, I've heard it the other way. Okay. That repentance is more an issue of the mind or the heart. And it's not an issue of a lifestyle. I think that God calls us, first of all, to repent, call it sin. Remember John 1, 9, confessing it, call it out, agree with God. But you and I have got to make choices to live differently. And we can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith. The Christian life is all by faith. You come to him by faith, you live by faith. Anything that's not of faith is sin. Mm. So, and we'll see that in Romans 14. So let me, let me just, maybe we've got to wrap up on this, this question because time's coming. Is this. Porn is a big issue in our country. Christian men are struggling a lot with porn, right? I mean, you and I deal a lot with this issue. It gets dismissed easily. Oh, I'm not hurting anybody. There's all kinds of excuses. But we know it's destructive. It's destructive to the soul. It's destructive if the person's married. It's destructive to the family. In every way, it's destructive. It, it certainly is what, what Jesus said in his sermon. It's, it's lusting from the heart. So what I see, some women, some men, will repent in their head, say, hey, it's sin. But they make no lifestyle changes. That's not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is, I'm going to run like hell to get away from it. And I'm not trying to be offensive here. What I'm trying to do is drive home a serious point. I'm only doing what Jesus said. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, what did he say? Pluck it out. If he, he, he says, if your hand causes you to sin. Many people believe that that's a metaphor for a male organ lop it off. Origen did that. He thought that the word hand meant penis and he castrated himself because it's so serious. I don't see that kind of fight for Christians going on. So when I say run like hell, all I'm trying to do is take what Jesus is saying, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, fight this fight with all seriousness. If it's devices, get rid of them. If you can't handle a phone, get rid of the phone. If you can't use a computer, trust God to provide work in other ways. Is our God not big enough? Is he not strong enough? But he calls us to participate. And we're going to see this as we get into Romans 8. Sanctification is a process where we're working with God to clear that jungle away. But we have got to see the, the heinousness of sin and fight it and fight it, and fight it by God's grace. And I'll tell you this too, we need each other to do that fight because we get tired. Hmm. I've seen sisters in the battle, they get tired. What do they need? The sisterhood. I see brothers in the battle, they get tired. What do they need? They need the brothers, a band of brothers to come alongside and help them. Hmm. 
You can't live the Christian life on your own. You will die. The enemy will get you. So we need each other. And this is, I think, the, the word of God laid out in Romans 7. And so repentance is not just a mental choice. It's a lifestyle choice with it. Agreeing with God that it's sin. Going the other way, not only mentally, but then making choices to run from sin. Right. That's good. I, I think it would be good, Tom. I'm, I'm feeling a nudge from the Spirit to pray specifically. Someone asked a question about, didn't God want us to have an abundant life? Mm. And, and right, I'm reading Romans 7, and like, we are, we're weak. We're frail. But doesn't God want to, Jesus says, I'm going to give you life and life abundantly. Mm. So I think there is something in and walking in, living in the Spirit, and then just believing that God wants us to have abundance. And maybe just we could pray like a little blessing yeah. over our body here, or we can, after the service, people can come down for prayer for that. Love to do that. Love to do that. Uh, I debated all week whether I should have given you the third picture. I gave you the picture of the jungle. I gave you the picture of the hole in the jungle. But there's a third picture. Obviously, I decided not to give it to you today. <laughs> but guess what? It's coming. Because it's that third picture that answers exactly what Brad's asking. God is doing so much, and he wants you to flourish. But you and I will never flourish if we're not flourishing in Jesus Christ. Mm. I like to say it, and I constantly say it, the best life possible on this side of heaven is to surrender all your time, treasures, and talents, hopes, and dreams to the plans and purposes of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. If you want to flourish, if you want a great marriage, if you want a great sex life, if you want great stuff happening in your life, it's in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean these things will be perfect. What it does mean is that's where we find flourishing. So let me go ahead and close us. If I could invite you to stand, if you're able to stand. If you're online, thank you for joining us and being with us. And uh, Brad and I, and there will be some other prayer people here, we want to pray for you. We want to win this battle. Rome, uh, James 4, 2, you have not because you have not asked. Again, we don't want to fail to ask for victory. Remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God. Maybe you don't believe this. I sure do. Thanks be to God who always leads us in victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I just pray a blessing on these people. I thank you that they're here. I thank you that they're hungry for your word. I thank you that they're in the battle, that they're winning the battle just by being here. But God, they're going to walk out and they're going to feel the intensity of the enemy attack. They're going to feel bombarded by messages of the world and then they've got their own flesh. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who always leads us in victory. God, give them that victory. Allow them to flourish. I pray this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless. And remember, Jesus changes everything.